You know, it's a great sadness that as we flip over to 1 Timothy 4, and we're in the first five verses, that the situation Paul describes there is, is not one that, that is uncommon to us today. Paul describes a situation where there is, in some ways you could say, a, a church split. Now, we see splits happen for any number of reasons. I mean, you could point in this community and say, well, there's a church split over the, you know, this decision that was made, or there's a church split over that decision which was made. And, you, you know, you can you find people lining up on both sides of that. You've got the, the red carpet faction and the blue carpet faction, and, and, and they equally distrust one another, and they can't figure out why the other side won't relent and see their point of view. And so you could, you could go there and talk about people that split and disagree all over all kinds of really things that are just, when you boil them down, are, are silly, they're ridiculous, or things we shouldn't argue about, things that, that really I would probably say you shouldn't even really have an opinion on this. I mean, we're talking carpet color, um, to which my wife is eternally grateful that I don't have an opinion and preference over carpet colors or wall colors or anything like that. But we see that churches today more typically split over things of this nature, kind of preferences and, and choices that are made. But when Paul addresses this church here in Ephesus, I mean, it's a radically different situation. They're not writing and saying, well, you know, we don't find ourselves really enjoying expository preaching, Timothy. If you just kind of tell us some stories about what Jesus was like in the good old days, that's really what we want to hear. You know, they weren't engaged and they weren't splitting over the issue of saying, well, Timothy, we don't really like the early morning service. What we prefer is, is evening services. If we could just split into different homes in our community, that's, that's what we go after, Timothy. If you don't do that, we're out of here. You see, they're actually splitting over an issue of what is true and what is false. At the very heart of what this church split has resulted in, as we look in, in 1 Timothy, in the city of Ephesus, is the truth of the text, is the truth of the Bible. Now, Paul writes them, and in these few short verses, he offers them a couple of things. He offers them peace, he offers them an understanding, and he offers them a corrective. A chart, and he charts a course for them to follow. But if you remember in Acts chapter 20, in verses 29 and 30, Paul, talking about when he was in Ephesus, said these things. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men who speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now that's, that's not a super encouraging thing to hear as somebody gets ready to leave, is it? You imagine if I got to the end of the service today, I'm like, hey, this is great. I mean, we learned a lot today. I just want to let you know that throughout this week, people are going to be steadily attacking you. Look for them. We're just going to call them wolves. And so you spend your week, every time you meet somebody new, they walk up like, hi, my name's Bob. How are you doing? You're like, do you, do you eat flesh? I mean... Are you a wolf? Where do you stand on this? Do you have any errant doctrine you're going to try and impose on me right now? And Bob's thinking, no, but I'd really love to sell you a car. And you're like, you're the, you're the wolf. I mean, you devour flesh. And, and you kind of go to that. And so you, it's interesting that Paul left them with this understanding that there are going to be people that come in that take the truth of what he said and they pervert it. They twist it. They change it. And when you do that, you leave a gospel that's radically different and you leave a gospel that is devoid of all power and authority because you don't leave a gospel at all. So let me read these five verses for us and then we'll work our way through. 
Paul says, he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Verse 5, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Paul starts off, and he, in some ways, he sets them at ease. Now think about this for a moment. If, if you are a part of this body in Ephesus, and you look around, and people that, that you join together in worship with aren't there anymore. I mean, you look around and, and, you know, they probably aren't as rigid as we are about having assigned seats and having your own special spot in the sanctuary, but, but they knew, you know, people tend to fall in predictable patterns, and so they would look around and recognize that, that so-and-so isn't here, that, hey, Mark's not there, hey, Beth's not there anymore, we don't see them, and so as they look around and they begin to observe that these people aren't here anymore. But man, they didn't bail on the church and, and, and leave town, they are still in this community, and they are coming back to the church with something that is radically different. And they are telling them that you can add to your Christianity if you guys will take what you believe and incorporate what we now hold to be true. Now it's interesting that Paul tells them, he says, now look, the things that are happening, in some ways, they're not your fault. And so that sets them at ease. You know, they didn't leave because they don't like you. They left in accordance with what the Spirit told us was going to happen. Notice that. It says the Spirit expressly says that some will depart from the faith. Paul says, hey, look, you'll remember that I told you before, and he could have gone with that argument. He could have said, you'll remember when I was there and I talked about wolves, and everybody's like, yes. Oh my, it, if, if we wouldn't have had all these new people, we wouldn't have had a new members class, the wolves, we forgot that one thing. But instead, Paul doesn't go to his arguments. He doesn't go to the things that he knows, or the things that he said. He says, the Spirit expressly told us that in these latter days that some would depart the faith. So Paul tells them the things that you're seeing happening are happening in accordance with what has already been revealed to us. And when does he set this time period? He says that it is in the later times. Now this is interesting. You'll find a lot of people that are thoroughly preoccupied with trying to figure out who the Antichrist is when Jesus is going to come back. And they've got models that spin and, and, and numerology all worked out. And they find themselves digging through the text. And one hand on a calculator, one hand in the Bible, and one hand over here in some Zodiac calendar. And they're trying to figure out how all this comes together. And they say, aha, Prince Charles is the Antichrist. And that's how it's going to work. And Jesus is going to come back on February 13th to 2009. And February 14th rolls around in 2009. Everybody says, okay, it wasn't Prince Charles. And that was the major problem with this equation. Right? Now, regardless of how you feel about Prince Charles, the interesting thing here is that these later times that Paul describes they began at the ascension of Christ. There is a point in time when Jesus departed this earth, when he returned to heaven, that ushered in these later times. And they characterized themselves as, as separating the flock into true and false believers. People that follow Jesus, that love him, that have lives characterized 
by the rule of faith, and there are those who are characterized as not being followers of Jesus. Do you see that? So what do we do with this when he says that, you know, later times some will depart from the faith? See, we remember the teaching in Mark 4 and in Matthew 13 where Jesus is talking about the seed. <clears throat> He's talking about the seed that's cast out. And he says some of the seed is going to land on good soil, some of the seed is going to land on bad soil. But the interesting thing to note is that some of this seed that lands in the rocky soil doesn't just get carried away. It doesn't just disappear, but it begins to grow. It it has a little bit of a root system, and it begins to grow. And it gives evidence of real life. But what happens? What happens to this precariously planted crop? It withers and dies because it had no true root. I mean, we see this over and over again in the church. I can point at, at members of my family. I can point at, at roommates I had in college. I can point at childhood friends, people that, that came in and they believed the truths of the gospel. Man, they had the knowledge and they said, look, I know how this works. They, they had memorized portions of the Bible. They had worked all of these things out in their mind. And they gave evidence of a seeming conversion. They took the seed and it came in and they gave evidence of a seeming conversion. But they fell away. They absolutely fell away. You see, something else came along, and, and that, that knowledge, which is what they were converted around, was never a faith which they were converted around. They were converted on the, the knowledge and basic precepts and maybe a good moral understanding of Christianity. They liked that. They liked what it promised. They liked what it brought to them. But there was no faith working in conjunction with that knowledge. And that's what we see happening here. It's the same thing that John writes about in 1 John 2.19 where he makes this argument about a similar situation. He said, look, they left so that we might know that they were not of us. Because if they had been of us, they would have remained, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were all not of us. You can read that in 1 John 2.19. These people that have left, as we walk through this text, you'll see that they weren't converts to Christianity. They were converts to an idea. They were converts to knowledge. They have departed. Paul shows us in the second half of verse 1 and verse 2 what they have converted to and by what reason they have converted. He says that, look, they, they, were, devote, they were devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now this is interesting. Paul doesn't immediately go to some other person and say, hey, just like we had seen him call out Hymenaeus and Alexander and say, look, there's this guy in, in town, and these people are devotees. They are disciples of this individual, and that's who they're following. That's who they're following. They're in his school. They're buying into his teaching. They're giving to his ministry. He doesn't go that route. It's interesting. He doesn't go that route, and instead, he's doing something very similar that he does in 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15, where this is what he writes. He's talking about people that are operating outside of the faith. He says, And no wonder, for even Satan himself is disguised as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. They knew the people. 
They knew all the people that had left, all the people that had taken up to this false belief in the way Paul writes about them. It doesn't say, look, they've come up with some new understanding. They've taken the Bible to the next level. But he says instead, they're devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. You see how Paul is absolutely, con- he is absolutely putting these things side by side. He says, on the one hand, we've got the true church, and you guys are devoted to Jesus. And you're devoted to Jesus, to his teachings, to his lifestyle, to everything centered around Jesus. But these people on the other side, man, they departed the faith, and this is what they're devoted to. They're devoted to deceitful spirits and the teachings that have a demonic influence. On the one side, we see those that are of the true church, and they are devoted to Jesus. And on the other side, we see everybody else, and whether they want to admit it or not, they're devoted to Satan. This is, this is really what it is when we boil it down, that we have those who are living lives under the devotion of Jesus, and we have everybody else. If Jesus is the only good guy, then Satan represents all the bad guys. Whether they want to admit it or not, they're devoting themselves by their lifestyles to Satan. Paul, continuing this description, he says, they do this through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Man, he gives us this graphic description of them in verse 2. He said it's through the insincerity of liars. What a a great description. It would be strange if he had said it's it's through the sincerity of liars, right? I mean, like, oh, they're sincere, but they're, they're seeking to deceive me. I don't really understand that. They're sincere in their desire to deceive me. I mean, everything about these people, everything about what they believe and what they teach is false. All the way down to their own convictions about what they believe. At the basis part of this, as you boil it down, that things that they believe, the things that they espouse, proclaim, and try and convince others to buy into, they don't even hold true for themselves. He says it's the insincerity of liars. He describes their consciences, which you'll remember over and over again, Paul in describing overseers, Paul in describing deacons, he talks about what they need to have a good conscience, right? They need to have a clear conscience. They need to be easily able to discern what is right and what is wrong. They need to, when they reflect on their lives, not be plagued by some thought, not be plagued by something that is going on in their lives which is, which is holding them captive. But now here Paul offers the opposite side of this. This is what this process looks like. This person has subjected themselves to bad teaching. They have subjected themselves to bad theology, of which there was a lot in Paul's day, but there is even more and more readily available in our day. Bad teaching was prevalent in Paul's day with the beginnings of the gospel, but it's so easy to get our hands on it today. It's so easy to wrap our hands around bad theology and bad teaching. It's on Facebook and, and, and posts people stick out. It's on bumper stickers that we get stuck behind in traffic. It's, in, it's all over the TV. It's everywhere. This bad and horrible teaching that isn't just a weak gospel, but it is a false gospel. It's a false gospel. And when these men and women in Ephesus repeatedly put themselves under the weight of this teaching, they would go in 
and their minds were getting burned. Their consciences were getting seared. It pictures this teaching as a teaching that is on fire, as a hot branding iron, and it goes over and it looks at somebody on this side, and it takes their mind and lays it open and shoves it inside their brain and burns it. And they leave and they walk away and they think, wow, that was, that was intense. I've never had my, my brain caught on fire by something before. I wonder if it'll be like that next time. And they go back in and the person comes back over a second time and, and has their mind laid open with this teaching. And this errant teaching is applied to their mind again and again and again and again. To the end result, they can't tell right from wrong anymore. Their consciences are worthless. The self-reporting of being able to determine what is right and wrong no longer functions for this individual. Now this individual is not a Christian. The Christian would, would have the Holy Spirit offering a testimony that the thing that they were doing is false. But this person has completely bankrupted themselves on this awful teaching. They have allowed this teaching to be the only thing that matters in their lives. And in verse 3, we read sim- somewhat of the crux of their teaching. And this is really moving in line with what Paul had said in chapter 1. You remember in chapter 1, Paul went in and he said, Hey, look, these people suppose themselves to be teachers of the law. And what did he say about them? Did they understand the law? Did they understand the law? No. Let me, let me back up. Let me ask it one more time. Some of you are sleeping, which is okay. You're not snoring yet, which is a good thing. Let's just pretend like that whole thing didn't happen. We'll all look forward for community involvement, okay? Let me back it up. And so Paul goes through, and he's talking about these people that are teachers of the law, and he said they didn't even understand the things they were teaching. And so let me ask you, did they understand the things about which they were teaching? No. Man, you guys are pretty sure about that. And so somebody taught you well. And so they didn't, they didn't understand the things about which they were making confident assertions, but Paul said they were tied up in these two things. Myths and endless genealogies. Here he further gives us an understanding of their teaching. He said they look at marriage and they say no. They look at certain foods and they say no. That's a pretty easy group to belong to, isn't it? If, if somebody said, hey, look, you can be a part of my group, but you can't get married and the, you can't eat, I don't know, tuna fish, which I personally hate, I'd say, well, you know, the marriage thing's kind of rough. And depending on where I am, I might say, I've got some good prospects. I mean, that's kind of setting the bar high. Does your group have any fringe benefits I should know about? I mean, at least it's a conversation, right? And so, but Paul says that the crux of their teaching isn't just these two things, but it's Christianity, their understanding of it, plus this stuff over here. They take the gospel, they, they love the fact that we can have forgiveness of sins, they love all this stuff over here, and grace, 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 and they say, aha, you can have grace, but you need to do this stuff over here to make grace a fuller picture, to make it really understand something. You need to have a dog in this fight. You need to have a part. You need to contribute somehow to salvation. And for them, they particularized it as not getting married and requiring abstinence from certain foods. And this is what Paul does. And this is masterful. And this still works for us today when we want to pick apart bad teaching. If you want to know if something is right or something is wrong, you know what you do? You don't call me. You don't call one of your friends. You go to the Bible. You go to the Word of God. And you search it. 
And you look at this teaching that this, this maybe famous Christian teacher heard by millions of people every day, and you say, look, that sounds good. I really like that. I really want that for my life. But is it true to the Word of God? Because much of what masquerades today as the gospel and is true is patently false. And so we find people that, that hear over and over and over again, God wants nothing but good for you. He wants you to have the best parking spot. He wants you to have all of these really good things in your life. And then something terrible happens. They lose a child. Something bad happens. They lose their job. Something bad happens. Their house burns down or their spouse leaves them. And they look at it and they say, why? Why would that happen to me? So they're forced to make a decision. They either say this God that, that I reported to love, this God that I thought I understood, he just doesn't exist. Or they look at their own lives and they say, I must have been sinning somehow. And that's why God did this to me. God is moving in retribution. See, they have forgotten that sometimes God allows things to, to in, come into our lives for our maturity in the gospel. Because that's not sexy, that's not palatable, that's not something that we want to take in. That is a hard truth in Scripture. We read in Hebrews 12 that it says, Every son, every person, every Christian whom he loves, whom God loves, he chastises. He is pushing you on toward maturity. That doesn't sell as many books. That's not as exciting to hear. And we're probably not going to find that on very many bumper stickers. But that is the true word of God. We need to be careful what we subject ourselves to. And we need to be careful that we are taking things that sound too good to be true and applying them to the truth of God's word. Because it will not lead us astray. Paul says that as we apply the word of God, this is what we see in this instance. That God created these things that they require abstinence from, God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul says, look, these people want you to reject marriage. As a, as a close aside to that, all the things that go on in marriage. Right? I don't want to make for awkward conversations with you parents at lunch today, but you know what I'm talking about. He says, look, don't be married. Don't engage in the things that lead to marriage or that happen in marriage. You understand me? Nod your head. You're saying, okay, I get it. Okay, so you don't do those things. You don't eat certain foods, and, and, and that's what you should do. Paul looks at it and says, look, you're asking them to reject those things God has made. And this is what the Bible would have you do. It would have you to receive those things created that are created to be received with thanksgiving by everybody who professes faith in Christ. By everybody, Paul writes it this way, by those who believe and know the truth. They didn't just hear it and understand it and walk away with it, but by those whose knowledge, moving in conjunction with faith, has transformed everything about them. It's to be received with thanksgiving. And then Paul, going again, appeals to Genesis he says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Paul, it, 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 I mean, it's really just amazing. He brings in the very beginnings of creation. He says, for everything created with, by God is good. This is God's very testimony 
over creation. You'll remember that in Genesis 1-4, God separated the light and dark. And what did he say about it? He said, it is good. Then in Genesis 1-10, that he separated the sea from the dry land. And as he looked over it, what did he say about it? He said, it is good. You'll remember that in Genesis 1-12, he created vegetation. He caused trees to grow and crops to produce. And he looked at it, surveyed it, and said, it is good. In 1-18, he put the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky. And as he sat back and looked at the majesty, he testified that it is good. In, one, in 21 and 25, God creates the birds of the sea and the animals of the dry land. And he looks at them and in some of their comical shapes and says it's good. And then God moving at the height of his creative endeavor and the height of his, his purpose and at the ultimate zenith of this, he creates man. The Bible tells us that he creates man in his likeness and he created the male and female. God steps back from all of creation. He steps back and he takes it all in and he drinks in this masterpiece that he's created. And his testimony is, this is very good. You see, at the heart of their teaching, they want you to reject those things that God has already declared as good. At the heart of their teaching, they are moving in direct contradiction of God. Paul writes, he says, look, nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. See, when we rightly recognize that everything in our life comes from God, it creates an entirely different thing in us. So when we sit down to eat, we don't take in this food in some type of gluttonous endeavor to, to occupy everything on the table but instead we return thanksgiving back to God that he has given us that meal. When we get our paychecks, when we get our paychecks at the end of a week or two weeks or a month or or a day or however it works for you, and you get that paycheck, you don't look at it and think, how can I spend this? How can I use this for my benefit? But it produces in us a sense of thanksgiving that the God who enabled you to work, the God who provided you a job, the God who gave you skills and industriousness, the God who helped you wake up that morning, the God who gave you air in your lungs to breathe. That everything you do with that job should be a testimony of your thankfulness to Him. So when we get that paycheck and we get that money, our thoughts aren't one of selfishness, of, of how we might spend that, of what we might do with that, how we might enjoy that. But instead, our thoughts are directed back to him of thanksgiving. And you know what that does in us? It looks at greed, it looks at selfishness, and it just kicks it out of our lives. It says, there's no room for you here. It looks at charity. It looks at those who are less fortunate and says, what can I give you? Because my great God has given me this, and therefore I want to turn around and praise him by the giving back to others. Man, that's a difficult thing. See, if every church in America would take up that cause with the understanding that God bestows on us great gifts so that we can give back to others, wouldn't be a single church that had a financial issue. Wouldn't be a a single charity that went unfunded. There wouldn't be a single humanitarian cause that wasn't able to be fulfilled. If the people of God would get serious 
with an understanding that, that when God gives us a gift, which is absolutely what your paycheck is. You think your job is hard? Try doing it with no oxygen in your lungs. You think your job is difficult? Try doing it if you can't get up off the bed. When we understand that God is the one providing us the incentive and the desire and the energy, it produces in us a sense of thanksgiving. It produces in us a sense of humility. It produces in us a charitable heart that loves God and wants to show him our love for him through the giving back of those things he has entrusted us with. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Paul ends with this. He says, For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. I remember being a little kid growing up, and my dad would, would, would pray at mealtimes, and it was a very consistent pattern of prayer that he would offer. Father, we thank you for these gifts which you have given us, and I pray that they would be received and blessed to the nourishment of our bodies for the furtherance of your kingdom. And it was something very similar to that. Occasionally he would highlight different members of the family or something going on. But that was kind of the framework of prayer that he offered. And in probably in your home, you have a similar prayer, a similar framework that you offer at mealtime, right? Maybe you're more holy than I am. Maybe you pray all the way through Deuteronomy before you eat, and your food is always cold. <clears throat> and your wife probably doesn't appreciate it. But as we look at this, it's this understanding that when we recognize these things that God gives us are gifts entrusted to us. And the way Paul writes, he says that it's made holy, it's set apart unto God by the word of God in prayer. You'll remember that God's own testimony of those things he created is, it is good. And then we look at the way the gospel comes in. We look at the way the gospel comes in, and the gospel comes into my life, and it comes into your life, and it finds you a horrible mess. It finds you not being able to tell which way is up and which way is down. You can't tell right from wrong. And the gospel comes in, and Jesus extends to you forgiveness, grace, and salvation. And as you proclaim that faith in Christ, as you receive that forgiveness of sins and salvation, God looks over you, and he sees Jesus, and his testimony again is, it is good. Do you see that? That as the gospel comes into your life, you have all these competing influences, but as the gospel comes in, that same thing comes back over you. And God looks at the work of Christ in your life and he says, it is good. Then when we sit down to offer prayer over a mealtime, or as we sit down and we pray and we thank God on payday, as we sit down and we thank God for even allowing the hardships to enter our lives, that we respond back to him with his own words. The reporting of scripture and in communication with God and we say, it is good, that God is good. See, God would have us be people of thankful hearts. He wouldn't have us be people that try and build on our salvation by excluding or including certain things, but by a steady recognition 
that Jesus accomplished all in salvation. And that your part in that is one of reception, not of one of contribution. Do you understand that? Let me pray for us.